Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's, uh, let's pray together before we come into the message part of our, our worship service. Heavenly Father, well, just thank you first of all for the children in our midst. We thank you for the blessing that children are, and we thank you for the life that they bring into our our church community. I pray for these children, not just the ones we dedicated today, but the children of this church. I pray that you would protect them. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would fill their minds and hearts with the knowledge of you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in them to to give them a knowledge uh, of what it is to love you and follow you. And uh, Father, as we come into our message today, talking about loving you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, Father, I pray that as we receive this word, my ask is that your Holy Spirit, who works and lives amongst us, would fill our hearts with a knowledge of your love, that we would be filled to capacity with a knowledge that we are loved by you that you are our heavenly father, that you love us dearly, that we can even come to you and say, Abba, Father. And so today I ask, Holy Spirit, would you teach us more about the love of the Father for us? We ask this in your name, Jesus, amen. In, uh, in the book, Surrender to Love, the uh, Christian psychologist David Benner begins by asking this question. He says, imagine God thinking about you. What do you assume God feels when you come to his mind? Just take a moment. Actually answer that question in your own mind. What do you assume God feels when you come to his mind? Benner writes that a surprising number of Christians answer this question saying they imagine that God feels disappointed in them. Others believe that God is angry with them. And others don't believe God would ever think about them. They say, why would he think about me? I would never come to his mind. I'm not that important. However, we actually see in Scripture that the main feeling that God has when he thinks of you, and he does think of you, the Psalms would attest to this, the main thing God thinks when he thinks of you is that he loves you. Scripture tells us over and over again that God loves us. Jesus says plainly that God so loved the world that he sent his son. The Apostle Paul tells us this. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We read also that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle John says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So God thinks about you, what his desire is for you is for you to know that you are loved, that you would be filled to the knowledge of his love. And that you would live in that love. So Benner goes on to write in the early parts of this book, regardless of what you have come to believe about God based on your life experience, the truth is that when God thinks of you, love swells in his heart, a smile comes to his face, God bursts with love for humans, he is far from being emotionally uninvolved with his creation. God's bias towards us is strong, persistent, and positive The Christian God chooses to be known as love, and that love pervades every aspect of God's relationship with us. After writing this, he says this, After saying this, however, 
I think I hear a but that bursts forth from some readers. As I've encountered it when speaking on this topic, it often takes the form of this. But you are forgetting about sin. Sin changes everything, especially how God feels about us. The question we have to ask, is that true? He goes on to say this. He says, I don't think that sin changes everything, particularly how God feels about us. God is simply not that fickle. Like loving parents who can look at their children with disappointment that in no way dilutes their love, the God in whose image we are made loves us with a love that is not dependent on our behavior. If at least some humans can be both full of love and at the same time disappointed in another person's actions or behavior, again, think parents with disobedient children, I've been there, I've been very disappointed in my children's behavior, I have never ceased to love them less. If I can do that, a flawed and sinful human, how dare we question God's ability to do the same? And Jesus teaches us, well, let me pause here, Romans affirms this thought. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and this is how we know God loves us. He didn't love us once we cleaned up our act. He didn't love us once we finally figured it out. It says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us even while we were in our sin. And Jesus teaches us that love for God and love for others is the heart of faith. Everything flows from those two commands to love God and love others. They are the most important And so David Benner says one more time, there is nothing more important in life than learning to love and be loved. Sometimes we need to learn how to love. Sometimes we have to learn how to be loved. You ever met people who can't receive love because they feel unworthy of it? So the most important thing is to learn to love and learn to receive love. And all of scripture is consistent in pointing to God's love for us and our love for God and others as the central theme of faith. And I think we're prone to forget that love is not simply an emotion that God feels. Love is actually God's very character. Love is who God is. John tells us very plainly in 1 John 1.5 that God is love. He is love. And I find in my own life and in the lives of the people I talk to when I'm doing spiritual direction or spiritual help, that most of our problems in spiritual life can be traced back to forgetting or not understanding the incredible love that God has for us. Almost every spiritual problem or issue that I deal with personally or in the lives of other people is when we fail to understand the depths of God's love, the heights of God's love, the width of God's love. Knowing the love of God is so important that Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus specifically for this, that they would know God's love. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, which is why you've heard me say it on a number of occasions already. But I'm going to repeat it one more time. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It is vitally important that we understand, even though it's too great to understand fully, 
but that we begin to experience and understand the heights, the widths, the depths of God's love for us. And the more we understand God's love for us, the more we're able to love God in return. The Apostle John writes this, we love God because he first loved us. It's 1 John 4, 19. So the more that we understand and receive God's love, the more we then love God with all of our being. It's always interesting to me how sometimes, you know, we try and say, you know, you need to love God more, but I'm, I'm like, I think we actually get this backwards. If we don't understand God's love for us, it's hard for us to love him just out of sheer command. But once you start to understand the depths of God's love for you, it becomes a natural outpouring that you love him in return. So the way it works is this. We experience God's love for us. And because God loves us, we then learn how to love him in return. And as we begin to love him, we then extend that love that we have received to the others around us. So we love God because he loves us. We love others out of the natural overflow of God's love changing our hearts and minds and souls. So love is the foundational teaching of the Christian faith. If we have not love, we have nothing. Do you recognize that paraphrase? 1 Corinthians 13, you could have all the knowledge, you could have all the miracles, you could have all the uh, faith, but if you had not love, you would have nothing. And Jesus said, of course, as I said, the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. That is the central theme. That is the the basis on which all of this is built. Jesus went to the cross because he loved us. That's why he went to the cross. Love was the foundational motivation. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So our entire faith is built on love and our God is love. So today I want to look at what it means to love God with all of our soul. What do we even mean when we talk about loving God with all our soul? I was doing like research on this. What is a soul? Try and do a definition on a soul. I mean, I've read lots of stuff about people who have ideas about what a soul is, but we don't, we don't really know what the soul is, but we know it exists. And so here's my best definition. The soul refers to our whole being. Everything that we are refers to the inner self, the real self. It's who we really are. It's who we are deep within with no mask. Sometimes we put a mask on with no filter. Sometimes we try and filter who we are and with no false self. It's who we really are. And some of us are more self-aware than others and we kind of know who that real self is. Other people are kind of living in this false self. And what God seeks to do is to love the real us. And our soul, then, is the innermost part of us. It includes the mind and it includes the heart, but it's more than that. I'll I'll go to Genesis 2-7 to try and capture this. We're told in Genesis 2-7 that God formed the man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living, their soul, creature. He became a living soul, is actually how that reads. There's something about the breath of God Breathing into us that creates not only life but soul. And so we can think of our soul as the core of us. And I think related to this, the the breath of God breathing into us means that our souls, our, our innermost being, crave God's love. We were created out of love. And we desire and chase after that love 
that God has for us. Timothy Keller once said, and I think this is really true, he said, the greatest desire of humans is to be fully known and fully loved. And our greatest fear is that if we were fully known, we wouldn't be fully loved. Or if we are fully loved, it's because we're not fully known. You understand what he's getting at there? And I think that's absolutely accurate. We want someone who can know every single thing about us. The beautiful, the true, and the good, and the bad, and the terrible, and the ugly, and say, I love you unconditionally. To be fully known and to be fully loved. And the wonderful news of Jesus is that God knows all about us. He knows us, the good, the bad, the wonderful, the terrible, the really bad. He knows it all, and we are fully loved. It's the work of Jesus on the cross that proves God's great love for us, that he first loved us, that instead of destroying us, he died for us. I think we need to understand that it would be the creator's right to simply destroy his rebellious creation, who shake their fist in rebellion, who hurt themselves and hurt others, but God is love. So he chose to do the most loving thing that you could possibly do, which is to sacrifice himself so that we, the rebellious, might live and be reconciled to him. Now, not only reconciled to God, which is where we sometimes stop in our evangelism, right? Do you want to be made right with God? Oh, yeah, I would like to be made right with God. I'd like to be forgiven. Don't stop there. There's another piece. Not only are we reconciled to God, we are adopted by him into his family, receiving the privilege of becoming God's children, And when our soul is in alignment with God, we will know that our main identity is as a beloved child of God. I don't know if you've picked up in this in the Gospel of John, but John constantly refers to himself, either John or his scribe, somebody. They keep on saying that John is the one whom Jesus loved. And you could read that as being John being a bit arrogant, like Moses, you know, the most humble man on the face of the earth. And John's saying, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. You could read that as him just making some kind of weird, arrogant statement, but that's not what is happening there. I think John is actually stating how he views himself. His identity is, I am the one whom Jesus loves. And nothing else really matters except for that truth. Your basic Sunday school lesson, Jesus loves me. You almost don't need anything more than that. If you know that Jesus loves you, you're already well on your way to understanding Christian theology. When we look at the letters that John writes outside of the Gospel of John, we see that John has this incredibly high view of love. He writes, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so our soul is in proper alignment with God when our identity is secure in this knowledge that I am the one whom Jesus loves. We can say it just like John can say it. He doesn't have an exclusive right to that. We all can say, I am the one whom Jesus loves. So what I want to do today is, as we get to the rest of this is look at a passage from the first letter of the Apostle John to see how we keep our soul in alignment with God. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. You can read that in your Bibles or it's going to be up on the screen. John says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. 
And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. If you're reading uh, outside the NIV, I think they'll put, you know and believe in the love God has for us. I like the NIV saying we know and rely. I think that gets the context of the passage out better. We rely on the love God has for us. He goes on, he says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. It's a big statement. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So John's point is sort of summed up, his whole point is summed up in the last sentence, as, I, as I've been talking about, we love because he first loved us. And let me just reiterate the importance of this. We need to receive the love of the Father. There's a very important thing to understand about receiving the love of the Father. We must receive God's love as a gift. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We simply receive it. To help make this point, I'll just ask you a question. What did you do to deserve to be born? Nothing. Your life is a gift. You didn't work to have it. You didn't earn it. You simply received it. You were born. And now you're alive. And that life is a gift. And just as being born into a human family is a gift, even though sometimes that family might be broken and there's strife and there's... Your life is a gift. Well, just as being born is a gift, so is being born into God's family a gift. You can't earn that. You don't deserve it. It's simply a gift that you receive. And so let's go to that interesting phrase of John in verse 16 when he says, we know and rely on God's love. You know, many of us, we can talk about the love of God. We, we might know it deep in our hearts. Some of us have more of a cognitive knowledge of it. Some have just kind of a theoretical knowledge of it. But John says, not only do we know God's love, we rely upon that love. And if, you're, if your Bible says believe, I think uh, uh, what he's saying is it's a daily, consistent, we have to know the love of God. We rely upon this love. We have to continually receive the love of God. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time experience. It's not a doctrine to be memorized. We daily rely on God's love. We daily believe that God loves us. And if we're not sensing the Father's affection for us regularly, we're not going to be able to love God with all our being. And this isn't a question of salvation, it's a question of fullness. Too many Christians are living outside the full privilege of being a beloved child of God. Too many of us have only a theoretical knowledge of the Father's love for his children, but our souls need to know and rely on the love of the Father. And there's three characteristics of God's love, the Father's love, that I wanna go through quickly today that I pray will sink deep into our innermost being, into our soul, so that we can learn to rely on the love of our Father. Again, like I said, when I talk with people through spiritual problems, usually it's related to not understanding God's love. Feeling as though God doesn't love them anymore, never did love them, that they don't deserve love. That's usually the problem. And so I just wanna go through some of the characteristics of God's love and I pray that this would sink into us. So first, let's know God's adoptive love. We've talked about this already, but just to reiterate it, we read this in Ephesians. Before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. 
God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. He wanted to do this. It gave him pleasure to do this, to bring you into his family. So this verse is about you and me. It gave him great pleasure to adopt you. You could change that word us in this passage, and you could make it your own name, and it would be true. Let me read it by using someone's name. Sometimes I use my own. I'm actually, Blaine's here today. I'm going to use Blaine's name. Blaine, you're loved by God, by the way. But let's read it like this. Even before he made the world, God loved Blaine and chose Blaine in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt Blaine into his own family by bringing Blaine to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. That's exactly what that verse means. It's not a general us. It's specifically, you can put your name in there. God chose you. God loved you. God adopted you. And the Apostle Paul then also tells us, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. So we need to know you are adopted into the family fully. You are a child of God, and he is the best father. Next, you need to know God's lavish love. Because God our Father is love, he has an overwhelming, over-the-top kind of love that he lavishes upon you. He's not a stingy father. He's not a father who gives love sparingly. He's not a father who gives love only when his children are great successes. The father does not withhold love from us. He lavishes love upon us and proves it by calling us his, his children. That's what the Apostle John says. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And finally, we need to understand and receive God's forever love. Paul tells us in Romans, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that promise? Nothing can separate you. So the Father's love for you does not change. There's a Hebrew word that, we, we, describe, that uh, we use to describe God's love. The Hebrew word is used as hesed. And when we see hesed in the Hebrew, we translate it as unfailing love. And that's exactly what it is. Lois Teverberg writes this. Hesed is a love so enduring that it persists beyond any sin or betrayal to mend brokenness and graciously extend forgiveness. Lamentations 3 gives us the definition, no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing, his hesed love. Yes, well, what does hesed really look like? Hesed love is like an exhausted father driving all night to bail his drug-addicted son out of jail again. Hesed love is a mother who spends years caring for and feeding and cleaning up after a disabled child. Hesed Love, unfailing love, is a love that can be counted on year after year. So God's love is not the thrill of romance. It's the security of faithfulness. It's knowing that his love is never changing. You can never be separated from it. It is ongoing and forever. The Jesus, Jesus Storybook Bible, which is one of my favorite Bibles for children, the Jesus Storybook Bible translates has said like this. God loves you with a never-stopping never giving up, 
unbreaking, always and forever love. I love reading that to my children. Now I mentioned these three characteristics of God's love for us, the adoptive, the lavish, and the, and the forever love, because proper alignment of the soul is about who we are, loved by God, child of God, not about what we do or what we have. It needs to be enough for us to be a beloved child of God. But the lie that we constantly believe is that it's not enough. Our identity truly is, I am a beloved child of God, but instead we often talk not about who we are in Christ, but what we do or what we have done. But again, I go back to the Apostle John who did great things. He wrote scripture, he did miracles, he lived with Jesus, he was an apostle, but his only claim, I am the one whom Jesus loves. When we get our sense of identity and worth from other things, like things that we've achieved or things that we've done, we're out of alignment. It's not good enough to have our identity built on anything other than I am the one whom Jesus loves. You know, maybe you're a great businessman and you have lots of money in the bank and you do really awesome business deals and you get congratulated for making the business run and work. Or maybe you're a great preacher and your church grows to thousands of people or maybe you're highly educated and you know all sorts of interesting things. The truth is none of those things will actually last. None of those things matter that much. And what about when you can't do those things anymore? What about if, you, if something happens and you have a stroke and you can no longer do the business deal? What happens once you get older and, and your voice gives out and you can't preach to thousands of people? Well, what do you have left then? If your whole identity was, I'm a great this, well, what happens when you're not that? It's a, it's a shaky foundation. So your identity has to be, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. Because that foundation never changes. Now those are the positive identity markers we sometimes use. I'm a great businessman or I'm a smart person or I do this or that. But other people see themselves not as successes but they see themselves as failures. They can't get over past sin or past choices. And so they identify like this. They say, I'm a failure. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm an adulterer. I'm a divorcee. They kind of make it their identity. But these are not your identity if you've been made new in Christ. If you've been made a new creation in Christ, then you're the one whom Jesus loves. And ultimately, I think this is the point we need to have driven into us over and over again. It's not about what you do or what you have. It's not about what you did or did not do. It's about what you receive, the gift of God's love. And when you receive that gift of God's love, you can be at peace even when you don't do well or achieve what you thought you should achieve. When our souls are in alignment because we receive the Father's love, That's where deep peace and love and joy come from. We love because he first loved us. And the more we understand this, that we are the one whom Jesus loves, the more we can love the Father with all our soul. But when we miss this, when we're out of alignment, there's a restlessness in the soul. Sometimes it manifests as an emptiness that we try and fill with things our sinful nature desires. Or the restlessness in our soul could could manifest as a drivenness, this need to succeed at any cost, It could manifest as a critical nature where you're critical of everyone and everything. These things manifest in us because our souls are out of alignment. We're not certain that we're the one whom Jesus loves. We look to other things to provide fulfillment for our soul. And that's why we must receive the love of the Father. And then once we receive it, we learn how to remain. To borrow from Rob Reamer, after we learn to receive, we must learn to rest in the love of the Father. And Rob points out that there's something really astonishing in in the passage that we read in John. John says, in this world, we are like Jesus. 
I mentioned that's a bold statement. In this world, we are like Jesus. I have never met a person who says, I'm like Jesus. And if they said, I'm like Jesus, I'd be like, ooh, uh, better rethink that one. Like, where's your cult at, you know? I don't think I'm like Jesus. I don't think I've met anyone who says that. But John says this. He says, God's love is made complete in us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. God's love gives us confidence for when the day of judgment comes. There will be a day of judgment. Some people, even Christians, are terrified of death because they don't know about this day of judgment. But John puts that at ease here. He says, because of God's love for us, because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, those who've put their faith in Jesus have confidence on the day of judgment that they'll be saved. Our work will be judged. Some of it might be burnt up, but our salvation is secure because when we confess and repent, it is not counted against us. We know for a fact that if we've confessed our sin, we'll be counted as righteous and we'll be judged not on our ability to be righteous, but on the righteousness that Jesus has given to us. Scripture tells us this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of God's great love for us, we have confidence on the day of judgment. But let's look a little bit closer at this phrase that John uses. In this world, we are like Jesus. We're not perfect like Jesus was, so how, 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 what does this even mean? Well, let me say that the whole context of this passage is about being made complete in God's love, right? Jesus was complete in the Father's love. We are complete in God's love. And so the promise is that we can be made complete in the Father's love, making us confident on the day of judgment and making us like Jesus in this world. So how are we made complete in love and how are we like Jesus in this world? Well, first, Jesus was fully accepted by the Father and deeply loved by the Father. And guess what? We are too. We are accepted, right? We saw that in the adoptive love of the Father. It brought God great pleasure to adopt us into his family. And Jesus says, the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. And because we are fully accepted and deeply loved, there's no fear. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So you've been accepted just as Jesus was accepted. You're part of the family. You're adopted. And you're loved just as Jesus was loved. And so we're not perfect But God's love is not dependent on our abilities or even our actions. On our worst days and our worst failures, we are loved and accepted by the Father because of what Jesus has done for us, because of our union with him. This means you don't have to be afraid that your Father in heaven is trying to catch you and condemn you or is eager to judge you or condemn you when you mess up. He's not looking at your failures and saying, that's it, I'm done with you. His love for you keeps him close even when you run away. His love never fails you. He might discipline you to bring you back, but it's done, on, it's done in love, to bring you back in alignment with him. And so if you've given your life to Jesus, you've become truly a child of God, united in the spirit with Jesus. And so I, my prayer for us is that we would grasp the adoptive, the lavish, the never-failing love of God. And as I said, most of my issues in following Jesus come when I forget that I'm a beloved child of God. I struggle when I forget that the gift of God's love is better than any gift this world could offer me. And if I struggle to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's usually because I've not been relying on God's love for me. I've been trying to earn God's love, 
or I've forgotten God's love and become distracted. Yet when I rest in God's love for me, when I receive the love of the Father for me, I'm more able to leave the things of this world behind and love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so my only ask for you this week is that you would spend some time reflecting on what it means to be a child of God. The Holy Spirit fills our hearts with God's love. That's what the scripture says. And so I just pray that you would receive the love of the Father this week. And as you receive this love, you can reciprocate that love back to God and extend it to others. So it's not a challenge for you. My encouragement for you this week is to find ways to simply rest in the security of God's faithful, never-changing, always and forever love. Just know that you are loved. I think that's gonna be life-changing for some of you. Just receive the love of the Father.